Well, as you can see on the screen before you, I've entitled this sermon, The Terrible Swift Sword. And some of you know that that comes from a hymn, a hymn called the Battle Hymn of the Republic. In the middle of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was looking for a public relations moment. He had written well in advance the Emancipation Proclamation. He hadn't yet released it. He was hoping for a military battle to pair this declaration with. And finally, the Battle of Gettysburg came and the Union Army had won its battle and Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address declared the Emancipation Proclamation. In the wake of the proclamation, he offered a $1,000 reward for a hymn that typified what the Union armies were after. Julia uh, Julia Ward Howe won the prize. And she did so with this hymn, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is tramping out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. The grapes of wrath is not a quote from John Steinbeck. It's a quote from the Old Testament prophets. Uh, The book of uh, Joel Uh, God is going to tread out, no, is it Joel? I'll have to look that up. It might be Jeremiah. I'll have to look it up, but it's in the Old Testament, trust me. And the grapes of wrath are going to be tread out. This woman, this woman is deeply moved by Old Testament narrative. She understands Old Testament words. Her vocabulary is infused with the retribution and justice of God. And there's something about the terrible swift sword that she understands. And it's this, that sometimes an evil is so great that it demands an incredible force, a violent force, to eradicate that evil. There are some evils that are so prominent and so grand and so big, it can only be dealt with by absolute military murderous force. And that's what this woman understood. And that's what's happening in Exodus chapter 11. There's a great evil in the land of Egypt. And the people of Egypt aren't going to give over their evil without a fight. And God is going to have to resort to a great and powerful force, a force of violence as it were, to get them to let go, unwillingly as it were, of their evils. And so we come to Exodus chapter 11. We come to this great and last plague. The previous nine plagues, God has delivered in a pattern, almost clockwork type fashion. You might remember that there's a pattern where Moses announces to Pharaoh in his court, and then he announces to Pharaoh in the open, and then there's no announcement at all. And God has followed this pattern, and the last plague was no violence at all. The last plague was simply three full days of this immense darkness that could be felt, a supernatural darkness that covered the land in which no light could penetrate. God was making a theological statement with this last plague that Pharaoh was no sun god. Pharaoh's son was no sun god. God did with the sun as he pleased because God is the only God and he controls heaven and earth. And he controls Pharaoh. And he's about to make a statement that he not only controls all that is in the cosmos. He controls Pharaoh's own offspring. He controls Pharaoh's own children. This tenth plague is singular. It's in a category of its own. It doesn't follow the pattern. It breaks from the pattern. 
And in fact, what we find out is that this tenth plague is the one that all the other plagues were building up to. God was working all of these other plagues to prepare Egypt for this one moment and to prepare Israel for this one moment that would be commemorated throughout the ages. This was the great and terrifying plague. This is the great and deadly judgment of the Lord if you're not one of God's people and it's the terrible liberation if you're part of God's people. This was the event that all the previous chapters have been leading to, and we're actually going to cover quite a bit more more material before we get there. Exodus 11, you might remember from last time we were in Exodus, is an important addendum to chapter 10. Pharaoh had driven Moses out of his presence. Pharaoh said, I don't ever want to see you again. The next time you see me, you'll die. Pharaoh was wrong about that. But Moses said, sure enough, I won't come here anymore. You won't see me again. Pharaoh perhaps didn't see Moses before the Red Sea closed in over him in a few chapters. But this is sort of an addendum, a last conversation. Moses is telling the story like this. Pharaoh chased me out of his presence, but before he did, we had this very exchange. And chapter 11 is, 11 is an extension of that final conversation. Now, if I could call a brief timeout on the series through Exodus and address one thing. There is an issue. There is a theological issue that I've been well aware of as we've been working through the material. And we haven't addressed it fully in any sense of the word. There are a few opportunities along the lines to address it, moving forward here. But I think this chapter is the best chapter to speak more generally about God and about the central theological problem of God killing Egypt's firstborn children and of the firstborn of the animals too. There's a moral question we have to ask and a moral question that God wants us to ask. Was it right, was God just in killing the firstborn, the firstborns of Egypt? Was God right in doing that? Now, you may not have asked that question. I'm sure most of you have. But I guarantee you, when you talk to people who don't know the Lord as their Savior, this is one of the first objections they'll bring up. And while we shouldn't feel any need to come to God's defense in this matter, it's important that we have a good answer and that we have thought through it ourselves and that we be prepared to share it with others when called upon to do so. And so what I'd like to do today is, since this is a shorter chapter, I'd like us to work through chapter 11 relatively quickly, hopefully within the first 20 minutes or so of our sermon time. And then I would like to offer sort of an extended theological application, asking and answering the question, was God just in slaying Egypt's firstborn children? Was God just in doing that? And so we're going to work through this material quickly, and then we're going to answer that question. So let's work through the material. 
there are three points. God is speaking to, God is stating three different things in this passage of chapter 11. The first three verses, he's speaking to Moses. The next five verses, he's speaking to Pharaoh. And then God is going to state attention, which leads us to this leads us to this reflection that we're going to do. So when God speaks to Moses in verses 1 through 3, I want us to point out that the first thing he says is Pharaoh is going to be the one to drive you out completely. So far, Moses has been going to Pharaoh saying, I want you to let my people go and worship, with the implication that they'll be coming back. Now, some commentators have said that what Moses is doing is some sort of unknown to us Egyptian bargaining technique where Moses would say, let us go and we'll come back. But what he really meant and what Pharaoh knew him to mean was that Moses wanted to leave completely forever. I don't know that that's the best interpretation because it's an argument from silence and we don't really know that that's what was going through Moses' head. I think there's a better explanation here. I think Pharaoh was bargaining with God. Well, we know he tried that. Well, don't take the women. Well, don't take any of your stuff. But imagine if I took my beloved wife to go bargain for a car. Okay? And the owner of the car wanted $3,000. And the, I say to the owner, I say, how much do you want for the car? And he says, $3,000. And my dear wife, whom I love very much, says, what if we paid you $50,000? I would say, what are you doing? (laughs) Why are you bidding up? God is going to so fundamentally change Pharaoh's heart that the bargain point is no longer only take these or only take those, but I want you to leave forever. God is going to so move on Pharaoh and upon the Egyptians that he wants to drive them out forever. And it's actually Pharaoh who's changing the terms. You leave, you go. I think that's a better understanding than a complicated negotiating process that had been going on all along. But that's my opinion. Those are your two choices. You're a thoughtful people. You can pick whichever you prefer. Okay. But Pharaoh says he will drive you out. God says he will drive you out completely. This word completely, in other contexts, means utter destruction. In fact, that's the majority of its usage in the Old Testament, and I think this is a foreshadow of what is going to happen. Pharaoh will drive them out completely, and then he's going to send out the army and try to eradicate them. But it's Pharaoh who will have his army eradicated, and not the people of Israel. God predicts that there's going to be a great plundering. God is not content with the people simply escaping like a bird from the net. No, Israel, without raising a sword, without doing any act of violence whatsoever, will ask their Egyptians for articles of silver, articles of gold. And uh, the, the, the Hebrew reads like this, silver pieces of silver and pieces of gold. So ask for the highest thing in your slave owner's houses, and they will gladly give it to you to get you out of town. God predicts there's going to be a great plundering of Egypt, which militarily speaking would be unthinkable, unfathomable for a nation of slaves. And God predicts a great turnaround. He says these 
former slaves, these people who were beaten, who were hurt, who, were, uh, who Egypt attempted to eradicate, will be held in high regard. And now this former fugitive, he was in the royal court, he'd committed murder, he was in exile for his murder, was back, and now he was no longer in exile, was no longer a fleeing murderer, but he was held in the highest of honor. And what is God telling Moses? He's telling him that Pharaoh's going to drive you out completely. He predicts a great plundering and he predicts a great turnaround. All of these will come from this Passover event. Secondly, in our passage, in verses 4 through 8, God speaks to Pharaoh. I want us to read these verses again because in them God makes six distinct declarations. Look at verses 4 through 8. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout the land, throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will there ever be again. For not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that they may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come to me and bow down to me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out of Pharaoh's presence in hot anger. Here are the six distinct declarations. Number one, Yahweh warns Pharaoh one last time. This isn't a shot out of the dark. This isn't an unannounced plague. It says, thus says the Lord, God is telling Pharaoh one final time what's about to happen to him. Number two, Yahweh declares that this is the final, the, he declares rather the time of the final play. It's not going to be tomorrow. It's going to be a very specific time. It's going to be at midnight. At midnight, these events are going to happen. God is specifying exactly when this will happen. Number three, Yahweh promises nationwide retribution. This is going to happen at the highest levels of power. Your firstborn will be claimed. To the lowest woman on the Egyptian order of social status, she will be affected. And it will go all the way to the cattle. This is the nation of Egypt committed a nationwide sin and the retribution will be a nationwide punishment. Nobody will be left unaffected. God is telling Pharaoh. Number four, God tells him, God predicts nationwide sorrow. The people are going to see this death and they're going to raise their voices and wail a sorrow that has never before been wailed. Now that's saying something considering the previous nine plagues. Imagine the wailing that you would have done to have been bitten all over by insects and have boils all over your skin and have hail destroy this year's worth of crops and then the locusts come in and eat next year's worth of crops. Imagine the tears that were shed in those three long days of darkness when you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. But this last plague will create sorrow 
that the nation has never seen before nor will never see again. Nationwide groaning. It's more of a humorous scene, but I think it illustrates the point. I was in Canada a few years ago teaching a course, and during one of the nights I was teaching the local hockey team, which I've never seen anything quite like it, except for maybe in like a college town, like like Athens, Georgia, or Clemson, South Carolina. The, the team was playing in a playoff game, and it was the seventh game, winner take all, winner advances. The students came up to me and said, um, we, we have a party at our house tonight. Keep in mind, when they came up to ask me this, they were dressed head to toe in Edmonton oiler gear. They said, we're, we're having a party tonight, and... Uh, the guys are going to delay the recording until we get there. Um, you don't have to finish early, but if you did finish early, uh, we would be very happy with that. Uh, but please don't feel like you have to finish early, and we wanted to invite you to the party. Well, we were on a really tight schedule, and so I said, okay, well, I'll do my best. And I got us out fairly early, but we were about 30 minutes behind. The game ended in heartbreak for the home team. And all through the neighborhood, you could hear fans walking out of their houses, groaning, complaining, bickering. And though we were inside watching a recording of the game yet to be finished, we all knew what the outcome was. <laughs> there will be nationwide groaning and mourning at exactly midnight. Candles will come on. Screams will curdle the blood. Moaning and anguish will happen instantly all over the country. Yahweh promises Israel's total safety. Not a dog will bark. Now friends, I can't take one lap around my block without four different dogs barking at me. I'm serious about that. And God says, not a dog will bark. This is fulfilled hyperbole. Hyperbole is usually exaggeration for effect. It's not true. But this is true hyperbole. It's an exaggerated thing. But God is going to do it to underscore the point that his people will be safe. And any other Egyptians who follow the Israelites in putting the blood on the doorposts of their house will be spared. And not a dog will bark against them. God is making a distinction. And the last one is that Yahweh predicts national desperation. The people are going to beg the Israelites to leave. Pharaoh's leaders are going to come bow. They are going to get on their knees in front of Moses. This is nationwide desperation to drive the people out. A few things to note of these six declarations. Number one, God says that he is going to come and do this himself. No more mediator. No more Moses raising a staff. No more declaration of, and then a swarm of uh, soot to rise into the sky to create boils. No, this is a direct act of God himself coming down to enact this plague. Moses offers some irony here. It says that he says that your people are going to cry to me. This is the word that was used, do you remember? Back when Israel's foreman went to the Pharaoh and said, please give us straw. And it says that they cried to him. 
And Pharaoh said, out of, your pre- out of my presence, you're lazy. You need to stop listening to these lies. Get out of here. He did not listen to their cries. Same word. And now they're going to cry to Moses to leave. Yahweh here wards off any hope of Egyptian retribution. You guys have heard of the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, correct? You can imagine Pharaoh saying, oh yeah, kill all our firstborns? That's fine, you can do that. But not a one of you will live in the morning. You take out our firstborn, we will take all of you out. That may have been Pharaoh's retort, don't you think? And God rules that out from the very start. Not only am I going to kill your firstborn, but you're going to get on your knees and beg us to leave. You're not going to touch us. A dog's not even going to bark at us. So don't think for a minute that you're going to get revenge on us. You're going to push us out of here and we're going to leave having plundered you. God wards that off right from the very start. And Pharaoh's bargaining backfires. I mentioned this before. He will assent to this exodus. And he will assent to their permanent departure. He will want it to happen. Much like the people, we're told in the New Testament, who at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every heart will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. They will do that, but not all will do it willingly. And not all will do it joyfully. And yes, the Egyptians are going to drive these people out, but it's against their wills. They're being overwhelmed by a superior force And yes, they're sending out the Israelites, but they're not doing so out of the goodness of their heart. They're being compelled. They're gritting their teeth, saying, you can go. Now, there's a tension here in verses 9 and 10 that God states. We're going to have to get through this very quickly so we leave ourselves enough time. I want you to notice that God in verses 9 and 10 expresses two truths that hang in tension. Number one, Pharaoh will not listen. This is on Pharaoh. This is on Pharaoh's people. But number two, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now these two tensions seem to combat each other. They seem to work against each other. And Moses is a brilliant writer, but doesn't see the need to explore how these truths work together. Other writers in Scripture do. It's inevitable, and it's right to ask, was, it, was God right to slay Egypt's firstborn? Was God right to harden Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh did harden his heart, his own heart, and then the Lord hardened his heart. Other scripture writers, other contributors to scripture, wrestle with this tension, and it's good for us to do so. Abraham, in chapter 18 of the book of Genesis, says to God, will you... Wipe away the righteous with the unrighteous. No, no, no. Far be it from you, the judge of all the earth, to do that. And then Abraham begins to wrestle with God in prayer over Lot and his family. Job in Job chapter 8 and Paul in Romans chapter 9, all under inspiration of Scripture, wrestle with this question of the justice of God in meeting out his judgment especially when it appears that God had a role in that hardening. And so it's good for us to wrestle with this question. 
Was it right of God, was it just of God, to slay Egypt's firstborn children? I don't think it's right of us to say, no, we shouldn't wrestle with that question, given the fact that in Scripture we have multiple Scripture writers also wrestling with that question. So let's, let's list ten points. Ten points to consider in answering the question, was God just? And I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. Yes, God was just. Let's start with that, and I'll give you ten reasons why. Ten reasons that tell us that God was just in this tenth plague. Okay? We can make sure you get the PowerPoint, by the way. So if you want to try to write them down furiously, you can but we can make sure you get the PowerPoint if you want these scripture references. And I want you to know that all of these references, all of these points, have two, sometimes three points of scripture underneath, just so you know that they're coming, they're biblical reasons, okay? All right, number one. Was God just in slaying Egypt's firstborn? Number one, Egypt was guilty of genocide. Egypt was guilty of genocide, and in this case, the punishment fit the crime. You might remember from Exodus chapter 1, verses 16 through 22, that Pharaoh gave not one, but two orders to kill all Israelite males. And that would leave the females for them to sell into whatever industry they wanted to sell them into. They would eradicate the nation by murdering children, all males. And eventually, the people of Israel would cease to exist. Pharaoh, in chapter 9, 27, admits that the entire nation of Egypt was complicit in this action. I and my people are in the wrong. And so there was a nationwide effort at genocide. They'd sinned as a nation and God was punishing them as a nation. The punishment fit the crime. Number two, God warned of this outcome at the start and offered an escape at every point. God warned of this outcome at the very start and offered an escape at every point. Back in Exodus 4.23, before any of these things happened, before any of the plagues occurred, God said to Pharaoh, if you refuse to let my people go, I will kill your firstborn. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 20, whoever feared the proclamation of the Lord from the hail brought their people in and were spared. Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, I want you to know there were a bunch of people who observed. They saw that Israel had light. They saw that Israel was spared. They saw that Israel didn't get the boils. And they fled their gods and their nation, and they went and camped with the people of Israel. And when it came time to leave, they left with Israel. There were a mixed multitude of people who left with them, and we assume that there were a mixed multitude of people who, when they saw the Hebrews applying blood to the doorposts of their house, joined them in it and were saved the overpassing of the death angel. God warned this from the very start and offered a way out at every point. Number three, 
The tenth plague is a singular event meant to warn the whole world. This isn't God's normal dealing with people. God doesn't always work in such dramatic and awful ways. By awful, I mean terrible ways. It's, it's terrifying. Exodus chapter 10, verse 2, God says that I'm doing this so that you may tell it in the hearing of your sons and of your grandsons. In Exodus chapter 12, 14 through 27, we're told that Passover is celebrated perpetually in Israel. This isn't something that God does on the daily. It was a singular event meant to warn people forevermore, much like he had warned the Egyptians prior. Number four, God is both giver and taker of life. Everybody has days that are numbered. Everybody has an appointed day of death. You aren't given more days or less days. You can shorten your days with foolish behavior. But you have a day. You have a day that's numbered. And God, your creator, appoints those days. As creator, he reserves the right to give life and take it. Job 33, 4, the spirit of God made me. And the breath of the almighty gives me life. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man once to die. Psalm 90, verse 3, you return man to the dust. When man dies, it's not a natural process only. When a person dies, it's God actively exercising sovereignty and returning that person to the dust from whence they came. Everybody has a day. Number five. God mercifully brings all children and other innocents immediately into heaven upon their natural death. Second Samuel 12.23, David has lost his infant son, and David says, he can't come back to me, but I will go back to him. Well, how do we know where David is going? Psalm 23.6, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's an interesting scene in 1 Kings 14, verses 12 through 13. Jeroboam is a wicked king. And his son has fallen ill. Jeroboam sends his wife to the prophet to find out what will happen to the child. The woman goes to see the prophet, and the prophet says, there's going to be a judgment on this nation upon your husband, and it's going to be really terrible. My judgment is going to be severe. And the child that you have will die. God gives the reason. The child will die because I have seen something good in that child. And I'm going to spare that child the violence that's to come. Now by innocence, what I mean is this. I don't mean it in any technical theological way. We know that all men are guilty. We know that we're conceived in sin. But God is just. And God doesn't hold children who can't yet understand accountable. What that line is, the Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't give us an exact age or time. So if you're a young person, 
Now is the day of salvation. Respond to the Lord. Call while he is near. But from a parent's perspective, upon people, whether children or others, who are mentally unable, God mercifully brings them into his kingdom immediately upon their natural birth. And so in some senses, on God's part, this is an act of mercy. There was a famine coming to the land of Egypt. And it would be terrible. And for some, for some children, who were ushered immediately into the loving presence of the Lord, they were spared. Number six, God holds all people accountable for their sins. God holds all people accountable for their sins. Romans chapter 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. What you earn with your sin is death. Hebrews chapter 12, 23. God, the judge of all. The book of Ecclesiastes makes this abundantly clear. God brings every thought into judgment. And really, the question that we're wrestling with here is, does God ever have the right to judge anybody? And the answer is absolutely yes. He is the great judge. God judges all people. Number seven. God allows nations to suffer under the bad choices of wicked leaders. God allows nations to suffer under bad choices, the bad choices of wicked leaders. This happened in his own people in 2 Samuel 24. David numbers the people, and the people suffer a terrible plague. And David says, why are you doing this to the people? When I sinned, the people were suffering under his bad choice. It happens again in Isaiah 10. God uses, uh, God's use of uh, judgment upon Assyria for uh, what they've done. God's using Assyria as a judgmental tool, and then he will judge them for the wicked choices of bad leaders. We see, we've seen this recently in our own world. Everybody, listen, the, the 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. Some scholars have argued that the 20th century was more bloody than all the other previous centuries combined. When you pool World War I, World War II, when you talk about the Russian uh, fallout, the rise of the Soviets and Stalin's purges and Mao's glorious revolution and all that took place in South America and across Africa and in the Vietnam War and in the Korean conflict, when you combine all of these events together, there was something, scholars estimate that something like 160 million people died in the 20th century because of bad government choices. Nations suffer under bad choices of wicked leaders. And that's what happened here in Egypt. Number eight. God is not criticized in our culture for unfairness when he chooses mercy over judgment. This was Jonah's criticism of God. Remember, he was sent to Nineveh, 
and he wanted God to wipe the city out. And when God didn't do it, Noah, uh, Jonah got depressed and said, I knew you were going to do this. That's why I went to Tarshish instead of going over here. And God says, should I not pity them? Should I not pity all the people that can't tell the difference between the right and their left and the cattle? Genesis chapter 41, God showed tremendous mercy to a previous favorite by saving him in Egypt from a severe famine. No other nation got the weather forecast of seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Nobody criticizes God for the mercy he showed to the nation then, which he didn't show other nations. Now God will show mercy on whom he shows mercy, and he will show judgment on whom he shows judgment. Who are we to say what God does? And that brings us to our next point. God is the potter and we are the clay. This is an argument made in both Jeremiah and by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. He says, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. Paul takes those words from Jeremiah and applies them to this exact situation from the book of Exodus. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? As we noted before, God warned the Egyptians innumerable times. He provided a way out at every time. God was not willing that any of them should perish. God was allowing a punishment to fit a crime, but even if none of those things were the case, in which they all are, God is still the potter, and we are the clay. What right have we to rage at the potter? And then last, number 10. God himself suffered a worse fate when he gave his firstborn into the hands of wicked men to die for a world of sinners. In the case of Exodus 11, God was judging a wicked nation for their wickedness. Egypt was not innocent. But God allowed his innocent firstborn son. And by firstborn, that doesn't mean first chronologically. Jesus has no beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Jesus has no beginning. The word firstborn is a title meaning something like prince or king, lifted up one. We know this because David, who was the youngest boy of several, was called the firstborn of Israel. He was the chief, the king, the leader. God gave his innocent son to die in the hands of wicked men and he did it for the benefit of people like Pharaoh. He did it for the benefit of tyrants who would take other lives. He did it for the benefit of terrorists like Saul of Tarsus, who would be saved 
and go on to be the greatest Christian thinker in the history of Christianity, thanks to Christ. Christ gave his innocent firstborns to die for you and all the terrible things you've done, the things you don't tell people about, the things you keep under wraps because you're embarrassed of them. Jesus the innocent died for you. God gave his firstborn to liberate you. God suffered a worse fate. Romans 8.32, God did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all. And John 3.16 tells us why he did it. He did it because he loved you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Was God just in taking the firstborn, the Egyptians? Yes. Will God show you mercy? Yes. Is it fair? No. It's not fair that Jesus died for our sins. But it is just. God's justice was satisfied when he poured it out on Jesus. God's justice was satisfied so that he can be mercy, merciful to you. God is loving and merciful and kind. And as I mentioned before, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So why is the Passover here? Why is it there? Well, it's to warn you. It's to warn you of the fate that God wants you to avoid. I took my kids over to the house the other day. We had to do some, what was it that we were doing? Oh, I remember. Um, we had a chest freezer with meat in it, and the meat spoiled. And so we had to go over there and get all the meat out. And uh, uh, it was one of the more disgusting jobs we've ever had to do. I've changed a lot of really rancid diapers. Um, imagine a hundred dirty diapers at once, okay? Bad. Well, the roofers had just taken all the shingles off the house and they hadn't yet cleaned up. And there were nails everywhere. And before we got out, I got very serious with the kids. And I warned them about watching where they stepped. I have stepped on a nail that went right up through my shoe and into my foot. And I know how that feels. And so I warned them, be careful for the nails. And I got very serious and sober with them. Did I do that because I hated them? Because I wanted to yell at them? No, because I love them and I don't want them to step on a nail. And God is warning you. Don't trifle with my judgment. Don't trifle with my judgment. There is a way of mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ for all who place their faith and trust in him. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that if there be any in here who is trifling with your judgment, who thinks that maybe you'll let them off, you'll let them skate, I pray that you would give them the faith to cry out to you for salvation. Lord, nobody will stand before you innocent. Nobody will stand before you without excuse or with a valid excuse. I pray that any in here who is delaying coming to your grace and mercy, I pray that they would bow their knee now willingly and ask you to save them. You did not spare your son for us, but gave him up for us all. And may everybody who is here take the Son as their Savior, by faith. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.